this evening, uh, to some extent, is the, the lacmus test, uh, to which extent you are still really interested in the Anthropocene and really thinking it through and not more interested in the nightlife of Berlin. And uh, we are very happy that so many are still here after more or less eight, nine hours of uh, sitting here and to some extent from time to time also standing up and uh, thinking through with us the concept of the Anthropocene. Um, I'm very happy to introduce one of our major projects in the Anthropocene project. Uh, and I just remind us that all you can see here and experience here is on the basis of two, three years' work. Um, the one was leading to the campus I explained yesterday. The other was leading to the book pro uh, production, Craneway Parade, Jürgen Renn introduced uh, this afternoon, and you can, of course, buy. And there was a third one, which was the production, or you, you can see in the exhibitions, the which are on show in the house at the moment. And one major exhibition part is uh, called The Dark Abyss of Time, and it's done by Territorial Agency, uh, who are with us tonight, John Palmesino and Anne-Sophie Renskog, and the photographer uh, Armin Linke. So most of the images you can see are, are by him. Uh, and also from the uh, um, HKW side, um, um, Anselm Franke was involved. He is not with us these days because he is curating the uh, Shanghai uh, Biennale at the moment. Um, what we are going to hear this evening is um, uh, uh, comes out of this project, the Anthropocene Observatory. And it's interesting that uh, territorial agency, basically are, uh, John Palmesino and Anne-Sophie, are um, architects. And what they are researching, what they are investigating in with this project, the Anthropocene Observatory, is to some extent the institutional architecture, which is the basis of developing such a concept as the Anthropocene. And they are relating that to, let's say, the theater where the Anthropocene is taking place. These are spaces in the Iraq, Middle East, uh, China, also Southern Europe. So you can see on the one side the, yeah, the phenomena, and on the other side, you can engage into the construction of a concept, a scientific concept, but uh, which may be also a social or political concept. And to show these infrastructures, uh, at work, uh, one needs architects to, to get into. And it's wonderful to have you all here, Armin, Anne-Sophie, and John. Please join us on stage. Thank you, Brent, for, for, for your kind introduction. And also thank you for two exceptionally exciting years that, that we have had in producing and making the project called the Anthropocene Observatory. It's a, been a very unique project because it, we've been able to develop it over the two years. And we would also like to thank our outstanding team that has been helping us throughout the process from uh, Armin Studio, Sara Poppel and Julia Bruno and from Territorial Agency 
Tom Fox and all the others who has helped us out. Anselm in Shanghai and all the HKV who has helped us and supported us. And most of all, the institutions we have visited and all the people we have interviewed, some of you in, in here tonight. And we have learned that one cannot make a project in the Anthropocene if one, does, one needs to collaborate. So when we proposed to make an observatory two years ago, we did this because an observatory explores how we perceive the world and how we give account on it. So it works something like a sensor that detects and produces data. And those sensors, they always carry noise or they always carry questions of noise. So in this project, such things as scale or language or reductions. And noise is what keeps things going. And in this project, we have detected this and shown it and observed the noise of the Anthropocene. And we have explored a very noisy time. And we have done this on, in two threads. One, on one hand, uh, the world systems, and on the other hand, the Earth system. So by world systems, if we think of things that human structure on the planet, economy, governance, all the infrastructures that it gives rise to. And if we follow Emmanuel Wallerstein on this and his world system analysis, he says this moment is in wild oscillation. And that's this tremendous noisy time. And on the other hand, we have tried to explore from the side of Earth system, which is the science of the Earth, or basically the planets, the geosphere, the biosphere, and the atmosphere. And in this, all the people we interviewed and who so generously told us things about the Earth system, we also understood that it's a lot of noise being detected and modeled. So we would like to put forward the Anthropocene as the meeting of the world systems and the Earth system, that juncture to be the Anthropocene. And that meeting is what we think put a lot of pressure on territories and it tries to restructure territories. The, the project was really structured as uh, ways through which we would detect the noise uh, of uh, the, or the growl uh, of uh, the Anthropocene concept in the making. So what we've tried to do was really to follow and uh, sometimes uh, almost uh, uh, in a sneaky way, uh, be together for many days, uh, the scientists, the uh, leaders of institutions, the farmers, the workers that were somehow, uh, over the last two years, so kind to allow us into their uh, world. We structured these uh, noise that we've gathered through the amazing work of uh, Armin's team and the collaborators around it uh, with uh, uh, an attempt to really uh, reduce uh, the uh, amount of noise, that's what you usually try to do, but at the same time, uh, by scaling things down, by re uh, subtracting noise, by reorganizing, we thought that the exhibitions, uh, the uh, four instantiations of which the last one that you uh, see downstairs is uh, somehow the largest, were really ways of incorporating as much noise 
as we could in our observations. And we structured these in the first element in conjunction with uh, the big exhibition on uh, the whole Earth uh, as uh, an attempt to understand the moment when the planet stops being the wandering stars and becomes fixed object of planning. And so how planning was mobilized in, in the last uh, 60 years at an international level. The second instantiation was in conjunction with uh, the yeah. After Year Zero, uh, big exhibition here at Hakave, also curated by uh, Anselm, and it looked at the very complex rise of dependencies and colonialism, and especially the relationship between work of the ground and uh, the simultaneous rise of uh, accounting, both in labor markets, uh, slave trade, and uh, the uh, sciences, and fixing those labor uh, and calculus times into the ground of the landscape in the forms of plantations and uh, organization of work. The third element was down to earth, which coincided with uh, the work on forensics uh, curated by the Center for Research Architecture at Goldsmith. And this was an attempt to give an account of the difficult elements of evidence of the Anthropocene. And there we've investigated a very complex relationship between uh, deep sounding of the uh, planet's uh, inner functions of, uh, in the uh, geosphere and the outer stratospheric uh, remote sensing analysis. The fourth one, the dark abyss of time, is an attempt to investigate the geological history. That is to say, the history of geology as an intellectual endeavor to study the history of the planet. So it's a double uh, junction. On one side, there is the history of the planet, the history of nations, the history of things. And on the other side, the intellectual efforts of creating a discourse, a practice that is uh, around geology. And the title, uh, The Dark Abyss of Time, is taken one-to-one -one, uh, from a book by Paolo Rossi, an historian of science who investigated in the late 70s the rise of geology in the 17th and 18th century uh, as a very complex fight between those who would think that the Earth has always been the same and those who would think that the Earth has gone through major transformations. And on one side, the major transformation of the planet entail that fossils might have a biological origin. On the other side, they might simply be a new incarnation of a fire that shapes things. But the efforts of science in picking that question about time and investigating immediately its relation to human time, to the time of the deluge, the time of the big flood, the time of the Bible, immediately shows us that the making of a history of the planet through geology entails dividing and separating the Earth system from the world system. Somehow the history of geology is the history of the division between sciences and humanities. And today we are facing a completely different condition where oscillations of all kinds are brought into the field. This is a scheme by one of our preferred architects, Konstantinos Doxiadis, who 
Apart from his being a sort of spy of the CIA and going around half of the world and planning half of the world, developed this very simple uh, analysis that the moment through which we have an understanding of human settlements somehow coincides with the aftermath of rapid oscillations. Rapid oscillations where knowledge about human settlements are undone. Uncertainty rises and somehow Today, we are in a moment of rapid oscillations about knowledge, knowledge about our understanding, about how we relate to the world, is diminishing overall. We are more uncertain. And so this is a very uh, interesting element. What is the curve for us? Where are we going to a stabilization to you know, slowing down the Anthropocene, as we've heard recently? Or are we going through more production of knowledge that will somehow engage more transformations, more unsettlements, and somehow this very complex relationship between the production of knowledge and the transformation of the earth is what interests us in this episode. The reference, of course, is to uh, our dear Italian uh, Giambattista Vico, who indicated that in order to understand the planet, we cannot simply look at its sphere being unhinged through metaphysics. We have always got to go through the words, the fine words of the mythologies that are attached to that. We cannot simply interrogate the gods. We have to go through language. And somehow the distinction between the work of Giambattista Vico and the work of Robert Hooke lies really in the possibility of having or not a direct understanding of the planet. Today, this is the image of science. It indicates rapid oscillation, projections uh, towards the future. But this is also the image of the rise and fall of social structures, the Kondratiev curves, the possibilities of engaging not only in rise of production uh, but, and rise of prices, but somehow being disjoined from individual action because of the overall uh, complexity of our interactions drones us into this very complex wave that keeps it at bay. The question is, of course, that of the Great Acceleration. And you might have seen this image many times. This is an image that we were given at YASA, at uh, the Institute for uh, Applied System uh, Analysis in uh, Luxembourg, in Vienna. And it shows, basically, the overall amount of energy that I use in the uh, world. And you see this rapid growth since the uh, 1950s in energy usage. If we do a slightly different chart, a chart that looks at the percentage of energy use and having still in mind the exponential growth, what we start seeing is basically the tragedy of the commons, an economical aspect that entails that we tend to exploit one resource at a time. So the time of biomass is followed by the time of coal, which is then followed by the time of nuclear and oil energy. What interests us in the Anthropocene Observatory is to understand that each one of these phases is linked to a particular transition, a tipping point in how we organize a territory, how we organize a life, how we look at that life, how we look at the energy systems around us, and how we shape our own cohabitation. So the 
possibility is to understand the early ages of modernity or the making of the big civilizations of the Holocene as complex institutional architectures that try to govern the work on the river, the sedimentation process of the river with the uh, seasonal uh, flooding of the river, gives way to a very complex system of organization of centralized powers, the big capitals, usually with a big emperor at the center that organizes a material uh, work as well as a bureaucracy, as well as a standing military. Today, that space is put in twist. It is... a space that is transformed in its very heart. The space of the large division of labor that Marx indicated as uh, the oriental division of labor are today unsettled and reorganized by external uh, forces. What we see here, maybe, Armin, you can... Uh... Yeah, we're here near Dhaka, and what we see uh, is how uh, the bank of the river uh, of the delta is reconstructed. This is exactly the point where the ferry that connects to, that connects to Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, should uh, arrive. And what we see here is a kind of, of, a, of a chaos of uh, choreography is in fact very well engineered and um, each person has a reason to which he has to bring his uh, eco bag, that is a plastic bag with exact amount of sand in it. And this way, uh, this kind of platform goes on and on and on and on for uh, several days and reconstructs completely the uh, river of, of the bank. And um, uh, yeah, this was organized basically in, in a mixed uh, organization between the military and uh, uh, the local engineers. But what I feel as a community activist, I see that climate change notion is being used mainly to exploit the third world people, exploit the people less in Bangladesh. Okay, so you terrorize the people is saying that you're, you know, you are near the ocean, a whole country will go underneath the ocean. So the farmers have to learn adaptation, farmers have to use the new kind of varieties and all this sort of thing. So the danger I see is this, that in the name of the climate change, a elite, global elites are monopolizing the knowledge practices in the name of science and technology. So you are there sitting in Geneva or sitting in the UK or sitting in Stockholm, you are talking about the climate change and then you are dictating the farmers how they are going to change the lifestyle to solve the problem that has been created by the industrial societies. So this is not acceptable to me anyway. We are dictating the farmers. Now, second question is this. Farmers are dealing with the climate change all the time. You know, you can see, we are here. It's a river just like it's there. It's a very famous Dhaleshwari river. The river is dying out. It's not because of the climate change. The river is dying out because India is holding 
the water. It's not releasing the water. It is in the you know, upstream and it is controlling the water. So privatization of the water, taking the water away from the downstream is the biggest problem for us. And the farmers in here, let's say in the village right there, you can see the village right in here. And these farmers are adopting this, uh, you know, this disaster. And this disaster has been created not by the climate change, but simply by the uh, countries uh, in the upstream. And they would like to use the water for what? Not for any ecological reason, simply because they want to divert the water for more urbanization to supply their urban people, to produce more modern variety of the rice that needs more water. So for us, climate change is not a problem as it is being uh, propagated, okay? And the... The upholding of water from the rivers is a transformation of the sedimentation processes, a transformation of the erosion processes that have built up over the last 11,000 years. It's a complete transformation of that system. Yeah, maybe just to add that uh, what we, who we heard is uh, Farad Mazar, that is from the um, Ubinig NGO. Uh, he's a philosopher and activist that created about seven ecological uh, villages. And it was, uh, well, for us, or for me, doing this, this travel, very interesting to to have a complete other viewpoint in a certain way. Also thinking that maybe these water dams constructed in India are constructed with CO2 bonds uh, that are sold uh, in another economical system. And so in a certain way, also have this other viewpoint as a voice in the project. So the transformation of the floodplains, the reshaping of everyday life is what we try to investigate in the dark abyss of time by looking at how the complex procedures are severing through long-lasting relations. The unfolding of the Anthropocene is shaping new territories, cutting away old ones and reorganizing and reframing the daily lives. This is the first image of Landsat, Landsat 1. And it's the first operative image that you see here. And it's quite stunning. This is taken in 1972 uh, over Dallas. And you might see all these blue lakes and blue reservoirs. Not one single one of them in 1972 was a natural lake. These are all artificial lakes. Every single Water stream is blocked by dams and irrigation systems. Today, irrigation systems are spreading life at a much higher uh, capacity than we've ever seen before. Agriculture is producing enough food for the majority of the human population. The carrying capacity of our industrialized agriculture is completely beyond the uh, original structures of the uh, Holocene. This is uh, one of the major uh, dams built through international cooperation by the non-aligned movement along the uh, Euphrates River. And you see here the major uh, reservoir and its sedimentation process is being completely transformed. So no longer the big plains of what used to be the Mesopotamic river system are 
constantly uh, organ uh, um, bathed by the uh, fertile um, soil and silt carried by waters. Today, the long-lasting trans uh, elements of the Holocene, the material basis of farmlands, like the one that we've seen in Bangladesh, has been radically transformed. It used to be a situation where the fire of the kilns to burn the clay that was the sediment was used to organize the constructions, the city walls, the houses, the farms. Today, the fires in these kind of places are no longer just the burning kilns. They are mainly fires, for instance, from an airstrike. That, this is an image of the first US airstrike on ISIS, on the same dam that we've just seen, the Assad Lake. In order to counter the transformation of that dam from an instrument of organization of, uh, say, irrigation work, agriculture, into a weapon. Today, what we see in the Anthropocene is a radical transformation of territories. What used to be a possibility of organizing through nation states the work and the structure of an industrial and industrious population is now taken as a very complex system of interrelation between nations, upstream uh, countries, downstream, interrelations of uh, uh, operators uh, both above the state and beneath the state. And so we produced this image for the exhibition that looks at the Mesopotamian river system. This is a, an image that shows in red vegetation, and it's taken over three decades. Comparing the vegetation index across the three decades, we come up with this very fine, very uh, detailed uh, reading. Here, everything that is with chlorophyll is reflecting uh, light at a specific frequency, and we mark it in red. And we start seeing the transformation of long-lasting, millenary territories into very complex systems of violence, very complex systems of uh, rapid transformation. This is one of the few, this diagonal line that marks the bright red recent uh, agricultural areas by the darker red uh, abandoned uh, areas of agriculture. It's one of the few borders that you might detect from space. It's the border between Turkey and Syria. It's one of the sites that we hear every day in the news. So this is a transformation of the Holocene in unexpected ways. The making of dams and barriers is transforming the floodplains in unexpected ways. And we're interested in understanding how this tipping point is giving way to new organizations of space, new visions for the futures, mostly violent visions. Other areas where rivers interact with uh, the organization of uh, uh, life are deltas. And this is an image of the footprint of the Chinese expansion over the last 20 years. Every 10 years, we've detected the reflectance of hard surfaces, and we've looked at the minute transformations in the Pearl River Delta. What you see here in the lower part is mainly Hong Kong, which is now undergoing major protest. But basically, in blue, you see the recent transformations of the last 10 years. Everything that is blue was not present there 10 years ago. Everything that is green 
was done in 2000, and everything that is read was, pre was already detectable in the beginning of the 90s. What you see is a deep transformation again of the environment, of the basic structures of a delta, the basic structures of production of contemporary life made in China is affecting the very surface of the planet. What we are interested in this case is in grasping the minute complexity, the stratigraphy, the complex layered stratigraphic conditions of that territory in the making, which is obviously linked with the domination of cities over their territory. And this is a second tipping point of a modern space. It's no longer just the spaces of civilizations in the uh, floodplains. It is, and the centralized economy of empires, these are spaces of cities. It's the space of the rise of a world economy, a capitalist world economy, that dominates and transforms the environment through the systematic depletion of its biomass, cutting down trees, burning wood, reorganizing uh, areas. The images of contemporary uh, palm plantations to produce biomass and the historical images of the first colonies in the Americas, this is the image of Savannah in Georgia, somehow resonate with an imperial uh, tone. The possibility of thinking a new infrastructure, a new institution that leads to managing a different organization of energy is then what leads us to think of the transition from city-states into nation-states. The possibility of inquiring and understanding that uh, deep uh, flow of energy is linked somehow with an increase in knowledge production. And this is, of course, the cover of the famous book, La Biosphere, by Vernatsky, the book that somehow sets the tone for any ecological uh, and environmental uh, discussion today, which is at the basis of the Soviet industrialization of the planet. The idea of living uh, rationally with nature is somehow entrenched with that distinction between the biosphere, the geosphere, and the noosphere. And in order to create a new society, a new infrastructure of work, we had to uh, go through this process of, stabil uh, of stabilizing the uh, links between the geosphere and the societies that inhabit them. This, uh, this uh, Hibili, and 30 kilometers in land is the quarries and mines. And we produce blasting. And when we produce blasting up to 1,000 1, tons of uh, uh, blast materials uh, uh, every week, uh, this blasting. And in the central part of Hibini, here, uh, uh, we arrange uh, two experimental blasting, nuclear blasting. In 1983, the two, uh, two nuclear blasting was made in the central part of Hibini, and one blast and 400,000 tons of rock was de uh, uh, destroyed. It's a world record. <laughs> so, when we produce blasting, we produce earthquakes. And this settlement uh, uh, sometimes uh, um, have a possibility to be destroyed. So, it's necessary to remove settlement from mines. We remove settlement, it's necessary to arrange uh, uh, roads. 
And so step by step, we develop our area from small mine, small settlement, then biggest in the world mines or in the uh, uh, um, uh, mountains, and big and very uh, convenient, very suitable for living uh, settlement. This is Anatoly uh, Vinogradov, uh, the director of the Kola Science Center, which was founded by Vernatsky and his pupils to push forward the idea of the biosphere. And uh, as you see uh, here, he was talking about the industrialization of uh, work, the possibility of uh, engaging uh, with a complex science, a complex rationalization of life in order to exploit more the uh, transformation that were entailed by that rising. Today, the urbanization processes of the uh, Soviet Union are over, but the long-lasting uh, trajectories that were set in place are still operative. They're still in place. The mining system is still, uh, still reshaping uh, the grounds. The extraction processes are still at the basis of that complex reorganization of uh, the institutional life. Mines are obviously the major transformation of the geological structures, you might think. Here we have an interesting example in South Africa. We are here in Johannesburg, so in the center of Johannesburg, and uh, these uh, mountains of, of sand are in fact the, already the result of the extractions of gold mines in the 60s and 70s that also divided uh, the city uh, in two. And what we see now is how these sand uh, Mountains are again dissolved and then transported about 30 kilometers from Johannesburg, where they are reprocessed with new chemical methods to extract the very last gold, that, uh, the very last particles of gold that are still present uh, in the sand, which is also uh, problematic because there is also a lot of arsenium, arsenicum uh, mixed with the material. The Anthropocene is uh, changing the structures of parliamentary states, nation states that are, were set in place to organize the extraction and the organization of in, the industry uh, of extraction in ways that are uh, obscure, uh, ways that are opening up very strange spaces. We it's hard for me to grasp all of this because I've only worked on fragments. You know, I've taken a fragment which has been, uh, let's say, East Anglia, and even that is the, the southern, southeast fragment of East Anglia. Um, and in this store around here, uh, there will be boreholes which, you know, I have seen drilled and I have sampled, uh, which contain, oh, um, sands uh, and shells and clays and madrocks, which have been looked at uh, partly by myself and my field geology colleagues. So we have gone through with this kind of material centimetre by centimetre to look at the different layers of the sand and, and the clay in there. Uh, and then those will have been sampled by colleagues of ours who specialise in the shells um, uh, or, uh, let's say, sometimes fish bones, for instance, 
uh, or they've taken them uh, and have extracted very tiny microfossils uh, out of those, things smaller than the head of the pin. But nonetheless, which tell you something about the age and the climate, uh, and let's say the depth of the water in which those deposits accumulated. Uh, uh, and each of those is a little fragment of history. Um, each borehole in there is, goes down through strata. Now, each stratum is a sea floor at one time. Um, and that sea floor might have been then covered by another layer of sediment, so it becomes a new sea floor with new sets of plants and animals living on it. Uh, and so on, and, and so on, and so it goes. Um, you have these tiny fragments of history which you put together to make progressively larger histories. And it's all here. You know, it, it, it really is all. Here is the British Geological Survey, uh, the uh, geological repository of the United Kingdom set up in order to pursue the economic advantages of the geological science. It started as a major museum, the Museum of Practical Geology, next door to Downing Street in uh, Whitehall. Today, the strata, the uh, sedimentation processes of even the uh, continental shelf are exploited by uh, complex systems of international law. This is a, an image of the continental shelf of Canada, uh, which is an exclusive economic zone, both of Canada and a little slice of France, because France holds still a little island uh, next to the uh, mouth of the St. Lawrence River. And this bathymetric uh, data is somehow resonating with the birth of another infrastructure of modern organization of the Holocene, or maybe of the early Anthropocene, and that is the international. Just off the coast of those shores, in 1941, Winston Churchill meets uh, his future ally, uh, Roosevelt, uh, on board a ship, and the outcome is both a, an alliance, a military alliance, and a united nation charter, uh, the Atlantic charter that sets the pace and the tone for the future development of uh, the international, somehow is a peculiar document that combines an aspiration for freedom and independence with a very complex interrelation of, re uh, of relations of human independence, state independence, and the complex circulation of contemporary life. Of course, first, every country seeks no aggrandissement, uh, either territorial or other. Fourth, all countries will endeavor, with due respect to their existing obligations, to further the enjoyment by all peoples of access on equal terms to the trade and to the raw materials of the world, which are needed for their economic prosperity. The tipping point into the international, the formation of what we call today the United Nations, is based on this idea of access to resources, which somehow give rise to the great acceleration. This is the personal copy of the Atlantic Charter of Winston Churchill with his scribbled uh, annotations and edits. Of course, the, the international is mainly there to govern Another scientific endeavor, the atomic energy. Another way to transform uh, energy 
to move uh, the human system into another tipping point. And together with uh, the international comes a big empty auditorium, a big empty forum. The United Nations at the beginning has very few nations in it. They need to become independent before. Here's Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana, entering the uh, General Assembly Hall. And the United Nations at the beginning of its independence project, the project of transforming an infrastructure dedicated to govern through uh, the parliamentary structures, large systems of networks of material extraction, becomes very quickly a system to implement independent infrastructures. The architecture of independence is an architecture of mines, of dams, of independent extraction of energy. And here we see Doug Amersfoort overlooking the construction of a major dam in uh, Australia. Today, the United Nations is seen by many as being slowing a process of uh, integration. Maybe the United Nations should get rid, be, get rid of altogether. And so we went to see how the process of aggregating, integrating science about the Anthropocene is operating at the UN. So we went to Geneva. Meteorological organization in Geneva. And this is the room where we filmed the introduction to the, uh, one of the ICCP uh, panels. And what you see here are the four seasons that um, uh, represent the, the climate. And uh, we were allowed, of course, to, to film the introduction, but not the discussion. And uh, what is, again, interesting in, in our in our work is to look at the, let's say, boring infrastructure, uh, look at the daily life, go into an institution, uh, negotiate what is possible to film, negotiate, understand how image also, and how architecture, how spaces uh, represent the uh, identity and the ideology of the institutions. So we managed through the help of Hakave to gain access to places that are really difficult to visit normally. It's really the back scene, the behind the scene of the making of the Anthropocene. So it's been really a privilege to work with this institution because somehow it allowed us to go and look at the photocopy machine of IPCC and trying to understand where it operates, try to understand why it is uh, so crucial that they would uh, uh, build uh, such a, an institution like the IPCC and the uh, UNFCCC and how they negotiate, how do they gather all the information, how do they go from the thick book of the integrated report to the very thin book that is negotiated by the uh, nation-state. So we've been really interested in understanding the mechanisms of knowledge production in the material structures. Where does information come from? 
How is it stored? How is it gathered? How is it documented? How is that documentation then transformed by different concepts, by different knowledge production systems, and so on? We've been interested in understanding the making of uh, the uh, Anthropocene in its very many uh, streams of practices uh, in the knowledge production as a work. We've been really interested in uh, following uh, in detail the proceeding and the procedures of uh, this institution. This is Bonn, the seat of the UNFCCC. Uh, unfortunately, there should be another image there, but we'll skip it. This was, in fact, also the German parliament of uh, West Germany, now transformed into a congress center. The possibilities of thinking the Anthropocene as a, a major Western somehow thrust onto the world, yet another uh, possibility of extending uh, a Western uh, notion onto the rest of the world, somehow is at odds with the very calm, very sedated, sleepy procedures of the making of this institution somehow at the boundaries of uh, interest. Something that you never see uh, debated uh, harshly. It's very uh, calm and sometimes pedantic, sometimes organizing minute details and so on. That we're not in the money team this week. I can very quickly reassure you and comfort you that we will be back in the money team in June. What is very fascinating about that is that if you look at the This is the roof of a supercomputer that analyzes the models of climate change. The tipping point of uh, away from oil industry into the uh, renewable industry is, of course, also a conceptual tipping point. We are modeling. We're modeling the world through very complex mathematical uh, models, very complex structures of analysis. Somehow here the noise, the complex redundancy of our way of inquiring into the world and giving account to the, uh, into the world somehow is transferred completely into what uh, uh, Paul, uh, who's uh, in the audience, uh, refers to as the vast machine of uh, climate science, of global change science. There's no possibility any longer to distinguish and this and disjoin the model from the observation. You cannot have observation without the model. You cannot have the model without the machine. And somehow the one of the most polluting buildings in Germany is obviously the uh, climate change uh, supercomputer because it consumes as much as a small town in energy somehow. Uh, the amazing thing that uh, supercomputer modeling has achieved is also to reach the limit of the technology. And somehow the machines are now changed, not because they will improve so much the models, but basically because they will consume less energy. It's a little bit like changing your car. It will not really be different. It will just consume less energy.
all the data is available for free, as long as you can run it on your computer. <laughs> the controlled environments, the heavily modulated autonomous cells of the models are somehow replicated in south of Spain in the complex systems of what is called the Sea of Plastic uh, in El Ejido, next to Almeida, where Armin with Tom uh, visited uh, the making of basically every single salad that you've been eating uh, in the last week. Yeah? The Tomatoes either come from uh, El Ejido or from the Netherlands. It's very rare that you will enter a market that is uh, differently organized. We have here the construction of the greenhouses. Again, uh, a metaphor for uh, warming, up, warming up. And um, uh, there are different kinds of, of complex technology. Uh, we filmed also some hydroponic uh, farms. And uh, yeah, what is interesting that in El Ejido you can find different kind of, of industries. One of, of them is really uh, plastic production, but also plastic recycling. One interesting point is also that El Ejido is on the border. Uh, of Europe, so when there is a seasonal need, there is also uh, cheap working labor that can be imported. When we started the project, we asked Will Steffen, that was here for the opening of the uh, Anthropocene project two years ago, in January 2013. Uh, where should we go? Where should we go and see the models? Who should we interview? And he indicated a very strange name, ya Yasa. You should go to Yasa uh, in Luxembourg. Yasa is the site where you will have a lot of information. And I don't know if uh, Will's in, in the room, but it has been really uh, been fruitful. And the possibilities of visiting the institution that was set up during the Cold War as a way to share the information between uh, the Soviet Union and the Americans, and between the Warsaw Pact and NATO, science about climate, science about what will happen to the world once you uh, try to destroy it, was invaluable. So we would really like to thank Will for this. And this is our interview to the director of the Institute for uh, Advanced uh, Systems Analysis, uh, Pavel Kabat. And he is sitting on a sofa which is in the room of Emperor Franz Josef in Austria. This is the summer palace of Franz Josef. It used to be also the room of Princess Sissi. Even before, before Sputnik went up, 1957, and before Apollo went up, we had no clue. We had no clue about the, about the data. We had no clue about the geography of the Earth. There were no satellite up to give us any, any, any single data. 
As we speak today, we talk about billions of terabytes coming down from these satellites to give us information. So we have a data, we, we could see now, we could process the data. So it's all based on a very young science, isn't it? 60 years, 50 years, 40 years even right now. The young science of Earth systems looks like this. This is uh, one of the most astonishing uh, images that we've managed to produce uh, in the last years. And this is basically eight, eight days of clouds over the globe. It's not any cloud, it's just the thinnest, serious clouds, the, the ones in the upper part of the atmosphere that somehow uh, allow the uh, greenhouse effect to occur. They allow sun rise in, but the, ultra, uh, the energy to be maintained in the uh, atmosphere. Somehow, the transformation of the territory in the renewables uh, age is a way through which we move very quickly from the Cold War of territorial divisions into what we call the warm war of complex negotiations, where the ways through which we territorialize, where we uh, structure our cohabitation is put into question. So we try to move uh, this uh, project a step forward. We try to understand how we could conceptually imagine the observatory not just as registration mode of the sounds produced by the Anthropocene, but also the sounds produced by the sensor itself. And we've investigated how, what will happen if we would take the director or the chief uh, executive uh, of the UNFCCC, Cristiana Figueres, and make her meet uh, Bruno Latour while he was uh, in investigating into the possibilities of uh, replicating the complex negotiations of uh, the uh, COP, the Conference of Parties to the UNFCCC. So we created a sort of blind date. We've created a situation where they would meet for the first time, and this is, uh, of course, uh, visible in its full one hour and a half length uh, in the exhibition downstairs, but this is just a little uh, excerpt. You know, I wouldn't doubt that the United Nations will evolve over the next 20 to 25 years because. Um, because it will need to do so to be able to um, still shepherd these new level of responsibilities that are um, coming on our plate now. Having said that, I, I firmly believe that because of the urgency of climate change, it has to be addressed by the institution that we have right now, which is the institution of the United Nations. Imperfect as it is, and complicated and insufficient solutions as have come out of it. But we actually do not have the luxury of time to wait for the evolution of the United Nations, which would take 20, 25, 30 years, and then to be able to use a stronger, more planetary-focused institution for a planetary problem because 20 to 30 years from now, it'll be too late. I actually think it's the other way around. I actually think 
because we're using this institution as it is now, created for something completely different, right? It was not created for planetary solutions. It was not created for that. But we're using that because that is the best that we have right now. And by using that for these planetary solutions, that will be... The uh, interesting point, of course, is that in this clip, and Bruno is quiet, but the, uh, <laughs> the complex thing that is going on is that two different views of what is at stake. How is it to be negotiated? What is negotiated? Who are the players of that negotiation? What are the territories that allow each and every member around the table to take a position to fight that very complex warm war is uh, the interesting element for us. And another element that we've uh, been very uh, happy uh, that we could achieve was uh, the possibility of uh, actually filming the first meeting of the Anthropocene Working Group that was kept at the house uh, in the uh, day of the opening of the last uh, uh, of this last episode, The Dark Abyss of Time. And here you see something also that you might not see uh, usually, the behind the scenes of Hakave. This is the conference room in the lower part of the building that was set up by the Americans as a conference hall, uh, as a gift to uh, the uh, democratic or the least part of the democratic division of Germany. I never understood the uh, democratic part, but maybe our friend Ben will Tell us. We just wanted to show you uh, this image because somehow you see a lonely person on the other side of the table where the scientists are negotiating and debating whether to formalize or not the uh, Anthropocene as uh, a geological uh, period in the geological timescale. The lonely person on the other side is um, Davor Vidas, the lawyer who somehow participated in this very complex group where knowledge production is not only bringing uh, complex ideas together, but different visions of the world. And Davos' position is that the exit from the Holocene into the Anthropocene will entail a major transformation of uh, law. We will move from the law of Holocene of the last 11,000 years into the law of the Anthropocene. And we wanted to thank with this our uh, colleagues, our team, our uh, friends, our uh, commissioner, uh, Ben Scherer, and the members of the audience, uh, and the students that were so kind to uh, listen uh, for so long. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this incredible navigation through material processes and concept developments on the global scale, and at the end, bringing this house, this institution, into the picture too. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so we have time for questions and answers. Yeah, please. So, sorry, do we have, one second, Mike is coming. Uh, thank you. It's a fascinating presentation. My name is Ben Mendelson. I'm a um, PhD student in media studies at New York University. Um, 
I wanted to ask about the sort of uh, ideology of the observatory and the sort of um, observational aesthetics of the, of the sort of uh, photographic and cinematic um, portions of this, uh, of this project. Um, I, I guess just sort of uh, in, the, in the way that kind of reason and rationality surfaced throughout the talk, um, you, you know, what, what does it mean to be employing a, a, a very kind of rational, linear um, aesthetic? And I think the seeing the Bruno Latour, um, and I forget um, the UN um, staff person's name. Uh, Cristina Figueres. Thank you. Um, it demonstrates that there's some kind of interventionist impulse as well in the observatory. It's not uh, uh, you see yourselves as also um, intervening or inserting yourselves. But um, uh, at, at any rate, I'm still curious to hear if you have any comments on the sort of uh, observ uh, observational um, genre, I guess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the question is where to position the camera and when to position the camera and ask yourself, is what you're doing, is this the best position? And uh, are you allowed to position the camera in this place? Are you allowed to position the camera at this right moment? And uh, is, are you fair to the person that is in front of you? And uh, do you want to be fair? Uh, to which point? All these questions. So, Let's say that calling it observatory is at least having the knowledge that you have to put yourself these questions before you practice kind of media activity. We have also made the project in a way that it demands actually also something from you as a visitor. So when you go into the exhibition and see these films, we actually wanted to tell you quite a lot, but we also wanted you to make your own connections between the different screens and see things that maybe we didn't see. There is a, a usual distinction between observing and acting that is rather bizarre. And uh, if you think of the very idea that there will be a third party, the observer, as it will be not in the room. And then you think of the capacity of that third party, the person who's not even there, but it somehow is there, to mobilize notions like neutrality, like agency, like action, like political action. So we are very much interested in that absence that is the observatory. The observatory is a very strange thing that we constantly do we are constantly engaging in perceiving the world and giving public accounts of our perceptions. But we tend also to mobilize this idea that we shouldn't be there. That somehow our very presence will change the structures that we are observing. And we are very grateful for the friendship of Bruno in, during this process. But it's not just, let's say, that we have to take into consideration the social making of science and the complex analysis of science. Now, what is at stake, really, is uh, intellectual integrity and of making friendships with the people that you're interviewing. Uh, it's really a human endeavor. 
But I mean, at the same time, one has to say, bringing different images together and uh, juxtaposing them uh, tells you stories. Uh, and uh, bringing, for example, an image from a helicopter where you can see the gun still tells you a story about the image making. I mean, there are a lot of stories involved in that uh, to find out the political and social commitments of the well, people who did the project. Well, we are architects. We, we make things. We make things up. Sorry, please. Um, my name is Susan Charbis. I'm a psychologist in Berlin. And I would like to, first of all, thank you for the incredibly rich detail of all of this and, and ask you whether you will ever publish it in a way we could kind of take it home and let it sink in a little more, like maybe a book or something like that. It's a question for Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it like this. We are thinking about it. <laughs> but I think also... No, but... Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. sorry. No, no, no. Uh, that, I mean, after two years in, in a such complex topic like this, uh, for example, me personally, I begin to understand some, I, I really, it's, it's a kind of beginning. And also, I have to say that it's also very particular that there is an art institution like Hakaway that allows you to develop a project uh, in two years, on a two-year span, and to present it step by step, like in a laboratory. So I think also that maybe it's a good thing that uh, you don't need to publish immediately everything because things can still develop and uh, maybe the, the results are, uh, has, to, has to develop even a little bit more and then there will be, be the point. And then also the, the, the question is how do you, as you ask yourself, what, from which viewpoint do you, do you look, maybe then you have also to, to think a format, a, a media format that uh, is like here, for example, in the space, uh, really thinking about space, how you as a viewer move through the space in a certain way are allowed to edit different topics together. If you would bring it in a book, then there would be necessary to find a format, a specific graphical format that tries to, to engage also with, with this question. How but perhaps you can look at it as a whole uh, undertaking of the curriculum itself, as an open process. I mean, I also realized during these two years, at some points, uh, we got very interesting ideas uh, by people such as you. See, let's go there, interview this person. There is a very specific site where you can see really the theater of the Anthropocene unfolding. So maybe it's a better way uh, to look at this and to uh, not consume it, but to uh, understand it and make proposals. And I think that questions like yours are really what make this project. Uh, the possibility of anybody observing and then going home and thinking, ah, I thought it was different, I would like to know more. I think that is the major uh, gift of such a project. It was a gift for us. Now, we had no clue. We really had to spend the first three days of the project listening to what everybody was saying in the room in order to understand what is this thing that they've asked us to do. And it was only by listening and by observing that we started to you know, get a glimpse, and we just got a glimpse. We have really no clue about what is happening. It's, it's so complicated. This is a beginning for you, and I really hope that now you will publish maybe an interactive video or whatever works out for you. We'll okay. try. <laughs> Other questions?
Hello, uh, my name is Tim. I'm a PhD student at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. And I'm still trying to grasp uh, like a clear picture of what you're doing. So could you maybe summarize, let's say, in six keywords or key phrases, what are your <laughs> results? What, I, what, I, what is your point, your no. ideas? Because it's very hard <laughs> to get a result. No, no, no. I would really uh, vehemently oppose that. It's too simple. Why do you want to bog it down to six points? We are trying to have at least 150,000 points. Why you want it to six points? Because I... I totally understand that. I think it's very good. But the point is, I can't keep in mind at least 150,000 points. So if I want to think about it, I need something which is a bit less, which is saying, okay, these are major ideas, maybe just major things, which then in the end become more complex, of course, in my head, in my brain, while I think about it. This is why I'm asking. Well, I'll try and summarize. We look at people looking at the world, and by looking at the world, they're thinking that they might have a concept that guides their looking and their telling of the story that is Anthropocene. And we want to understand what that means. Other comments? Questions? I mean, there is this incredible gap between the infrastructures you are showing and the people on the ground. Do you have any idea how to bridge this gap? Well, I, have I mean, you made this sentence, uh, if you can put it on your computer, you get all the images for free, but of course you can't, huh? because the infrastructures are so uh, elaborated, so complex, that it's very difficult to imagine how these infrastructures get related with social action, social intervention from the ground. Yeah. Our, a friend of ours would say that infrastructures are always uh, over-declared and underperformed. There's always a way through which you would transform uh, an ambition, for instance, to know into a set of protocols, procedures, wires, uh, asphalt, and that is maybe uh, what is at stake here. Uh, the possibility of taking a political, human, artistic, uh, life ambition and making it into a protocol. And you're right, there is a gap. There is a growing gap, I think, and I think that we all uh, would agree on this, on what infrastructures are doing for us. And as an architect, I'm particularly bothered by this because I still think that there's a possibility of reframing territories, redesigning uh, the uh, way that we interact with things and how they act on us. Okay. Uh, Marco, uh, Marco Almiro from KTH. Thank you so much for your presentation. I, I am sorry if I am narrowing a little bit my the discussion here, but I, since you, you, you were saying that it's a lot about narratives and the way in which people uh, represent and tell the Anthropocene, in one slide you have presented you know, a, a slide saying that the slide was telling the story of the tragedy of the commons, and you were delivering this, so it's a narrative. I wonder, for, for instance, for me, that slide could be actually the tragedy of privatization, 
So uh, how much your own narratives are, are there? And uh, I, I mean, if, if you don't see, you know, also a problem in, uh, in this, because uh, while during the, ex the exhibition, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that we are looking at narratives, well, we are also listening to your own narratives, yeah. as in that case. Yeah. The other major graph that we uh, always like to uh, bring up is linked to the tragedy of the commons, and it's the graph of uh, governance of the commons by Eleanor Ostrom. So you're right, it might be an issue of privatization, but uh, uh, the question is, no, is the private uh, something that we have to exclude in our observation? Is the common, uh, just a different social structure around which we give, uh, we structure ourselves in according to objects, or is it a different uh, thing? And somehow the uh, analysis of property uh, and uh, the commonality or the exclusivity of property cannot be reduced to the exclusivity of my property to everybody else's. And that's why I think that your uh, question is very uh, Enthralling, no? it brings up a name that should resonate a lot in the room, Eleanor Ostrom, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize for economy. There are not enough women in the film because it's difficult to find the ones that are willing to be on camera because they have a completely different approach to being in public or in private. It's not that they're not there, they just operate in a completely different way, maybe not within the infrastructure. I did, I did notice the lack of women. Uh, can, can you uh, identify who are you? Miriam Diamond, University of Toronto. Thank you very much. That was extremely provocative and um, uh, memorable uh, and also will, will shape my thoughts. I, as I said, I did notice the lack of women. Uh, but just as a counterpoint to the previous comment about privatization, I thought about the Three Gorges Dam in China, which is not an issue of privatization, but very much an issue of appropriation of land and enormous displacement of humanity and history in order to harness energy. It must have been very challenging for you to choose amongst the, the innumerable projects that have shaped the world in the Anthropocene. I, do you have any comment on that? Maybe, uh, Armin, because you took well, that picture. It's nice that you mentioned this uh, water dam because for me it was also a very important point in my life about well, now 15 years ago where I read of, the, of this construction of this water dam in an Italian newspaper and then I found out uh, well, there was a company in Milano where I was living at the time that was participating in the construction of this water dam. And then I asked them if I could go there to, uh, to, to photograph it. And then this started a whole, let's say, series of, of images around the world about, about infrastructure. And at um, the same time, there was the construction of a parallel nine, Nile, the Toshka project. And uh, so I tried also to go there. And in fact, now it's interesting that this project completely failed. There are these huge, uh, huge uh, pumps uh, constructed by uh, 
constructed by Siemens that are there still not working. And, and this parallel Nile uh, that should uh, give water to uh, new, five new five cities uh, is, is not working simply. It's, it failed. And uh, so <laughs> it's, it's how do you select these places? Uh, well, it's also interesting that water dam is also a, a piece of, of land art, a very strong piece of land art in, in, the, in the landscape. So there are two sides of it. Uh, a group to mention in our process of finding places is really the Anthropocene Working Group and the members of this group. And this was the people who met here a month ago in our last little video to discuss about when the Anthropocene started and if it started. And scientists, and mostly geologists they are, and they will keep discussing, which they have done also for two years already, and in 2016, they will make their statement on it. So what we kept doing was to ask them, what do you think is interesting and what should we fill? So the ones of you who are here, you have heard that question <laughs> from the Anthropocene Working Group. And uh, sometimes we followed it. We got great tips of institutions. And that was very much of our source book as well. Yeah, this is the water dam. Yeah, in fact, this is, an, uh, it's, it's, uh, this is the Ertan water dam. This is in the mountain, more direction uh, to the Himalaya. And uh, uh, what you see here is, well, it's very dark, but you see fishermen that are using the water dam uh, because fish gets a little bit, uh, let's say, confused going through the turbines. So when they go out, they're very easy to fish. But also sometimes happens that a piece of wood uh, or some debris comes out, and then the fisherman is also taken by the debris. So it's a dangerous job. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, I saw you present part of this work in Toulouse at the Anthropocene Monument Colloquium as well, and I was struck by something again this time, which was um, how in many of your shots, uh, the hands of the speakers really stand out to me. And in some of them, actually, the person's body is cut off and just the hands are shown. And especially the way, I guess, the officials at the UN, for example, are moving their fingertips and their hands around on the table. And um, the way Jan Zalasiewicz handles the rocks or the way the Indian man is describing the, uh, the seed bank he's working with and the way his gestures are very different. And I, I guess these gestures really, really stood out to me both times I've seen you present. And the way the gestures say um, so much, I guess, about the person, um, but also binds all of them together in this beautiful way. And I wonder if that was kind of an explicit concern. Thanks. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, sometimes these things are, uh, are a little bit intuitive, but... Uh... Uh, well, there is always the tension how the, the body relates to, to the space in a certain way. And, uh, well, in a certain way, sometimes maybe there is also a lot of attention to models or to representations. And you can say that sometimes what we do with our hands, or there is always a lot of time there is people doing this, this uh, gesture of the globe, no? In the pumpkin. The pumpkin, like... Uh, <laughs> 
And uh, so these are, with our, we often use our hands to create maps, uh, to create models, uh, or to, to create bodies. So we and use we hands to, to create so representations. <laughs> so maybe this is, <laughs> you picked up a, a point that but I didn't think about. Could I point out uh, that this is actually one of the amazing things of working together with uh, Anselm Franke. Uh, his insisting on gestures as a trope for the films was really revealing. And one of the other things is, of course, the image of uh, many of the interviewers, of the interviewees, when they are somehow puzzled by their own words and are somehow caught in thinking, what does it mean that I'm doing this? And I think there's a particularly beautiful uh, part in an interview to uh, a young girl, uh, who's a Russian a sociologist, and she somehow she's doing work for a the European Development Bank in order to facilitate the exploitation of uh, Arctic oil for, uh, in the Stockman field for uh, uh, Gazprom, and she's somehow realizing that she's doing immaterial labor, exactly like Marx uh, uh, was imagining this, something that she learned at school was somehow flashing back at her. Right? We're very interested in those tropes, in those gestures. It's really through the work of uh, Anselm. I thought this means a head instead of the word. Uh, I think we have uh, time for two, three questions and then wrap up. Yes, uh, I'm Gustavo Valdivia and I'm PhD in anthropology, uh, student PhD in anthropology. Uh, I want to just mentioned something I was thinking while I was uh, uh, seeing this. Um, I don't know if uh, you have thought about this, but uh, the, the, the thing that was stunning for me was this kind of very cold or this kind of hyper-rationalization of climate, or that at the end it's uh, a very, uh, a very, I don't know, essential thing for, for humanity, like that relationship with, it's the relationship with nature, right? And, 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 and that's something that's been there, but now we see it through this institutional mechanism becoming like a, this very cold and external and rational, uh, rational thing, but I don't know, I was just thinking uh, for some reason about this um, uh, Chris Marker's uh, film, uh, Statues Also Die, and how, I, I, I don't know if, you remember the first lines in the, in the film? It uh, it starts like saying, uh, "When men die, they uh, enter history, and when statues die, they enter art." So I was thinking, how also in climate, you know, when it's in, uh, here enters these institutions, they hyper-rationalize, and there's not a there's not a connection with human anymore. It's like just these models, these just uh, images, and that these institutional mechanisms that you are, you are pointing very well, but I was just wondering if this is something that you have been thinking or how external or alienated is the relationship with climate through these institutions? I would disagree really with uh, that. I think that there's nothing more human than a model and uh, there's nothing more human than an institution to model the world where we get together and look at the world. But Having said that, one of the most striking persons that we've met in this journey was uh, uh, the person who started it all, uh, Professor Paul Krutzen. And we were 
really lucky to be able to interview him on his 80th birthday. And of course he wants to be as rational as possible about the chemistry of the atmosphere. And imagine what a hero is. You know, this rational, cold uh, way of gazing at the sky. What it entails for our capacity of surviving on this planet. No? I wouldn't dismiss that as just being, okay, not so human. I think there's so much more to that. Okay, uh, last question. Good. Nobody takes the pressure of the last question. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> And uh, see you tomorrow morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you.